We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and uh, as we've been by way of introduction, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. Um, Paul's letters, as we read them, it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. There's been other communications that have come, and Paul is responding to them. Before we listen to what Paul says, then let's remind ourselves of what's happening on the other side of the line. Uh, Jews and Jewish Christians had fallen out of favor in the Roman Empire in the fourth decade, about 40 A.D. or so. They enjoyed a lot of popularity, really. About 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. And Jews were esteemed because they believed in one God. And they were sane Morally, they had high values, and most of the Romans looked at that from a polytheistic, kind of decadent culture, and they said, that looks actually pretty good to us. And, but what ended up happening, because of the conflict between Jews and Jewish Christians, um, the Emperor Claudius, then in about 40, 41 AD, said, that's all I can stand, and he banished Jews from the Roman Empire. They were from Rome for about four or five years until that emperor died. Another emperor took his place and the edicts, which the former emperor had decreed, then were null. And so Jews started to filter back into Rome. Uh, Paul writes this letter one to three years within the Jews return Gentile Christians in the period in which Jews and Jewish Christians were gone they had to govern themselves so they met in house churches back then churches didn't meet in build big buildings it meant in bigger living rooms with a small group of individuals who gathered together on Sundays and that had been happening um, Gentile again the Gentile Christians had been governing themselves and as Jewish Christians are returning into these fellowships, it could have uh, an unfortunate impact. And this is why if you have been, if you're a younger brother or sister, and if you have a bossy older brother or sister who went away to college, and so you got to rule the roost when they were away, and then when they came back after college, it's just like, holy smokes, I really was liking the freedom that I had to be able to do what I wanted to do and I didn't have to answer to. I think the Gentile Christians might have felt like that. The Jews, Jewish Christians were their older brothers and sisters and were a little bit harsh. Uh, in this letter, Paul confronts uh, Greco-Roman culture because it, it was pretty decadent. However, he, unlike most of his countrymen, Paul characterizes immorality as the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. That's very different. What, what the Jewish Christians would have indicated is your immorality is the root of the problem. And the fruit of the problem is God is going to have real issues with you. What Paul writes, that's not so. Immorality is not the root of the problem. It's the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem is idolatry. Not thinking of God as he actually is. That's what Paul writes, and that's what he understood very clearly. Um, he spends more time in this letter 
exhorting Jewish Christians, he deals with Gentile immorality, but kind of goes from that and addresses Jewish Christians and exhorts them. The Jewish Christians believed that receiving the Ten Commandments made them superior to pagan Gentiles, and both Jews and Jewish Christians would look at their legacy having being the people to whom God gave the commandments and thought that that gave them kind of a leg up. They were able to kind of look down their nose at their pagan brothers and sisters who didn't have the benefit of having that type of direct communication to their people as they as Jews received from God. Um, They believed that receiving the law at Mount Sinai gave them not merely the right but the responsibility to judge Gentiles. Here's what Paul writes in the second chapter of this letter we looked at a couple weeks ago, and here's what he says. Just listen, but if you, Paul writes, call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are, and then he goes into some things that they would have seen themselves as Um, being characterized by. You are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, what Paul's referring to is that's the way they would have seen themselves. Having a superior law, a guide to the blind, a kind of instructor of the foolish who didn't have the opportunity to receive this law from directly from God. That's the way they saw themselves. Paul knows that the Gentiles live in spiritual darkness. He's aware of that. They are spiritually blind. For this reason, what Paul is encouraging Jewish Christians, guide your Gentile brothers and sisters. Don't goad them. You know the difference between guiding and goading? Guiding is from in front. It's when you ask individuals to follow you. Goading is from behind. Goading is a way an, a shepherd would, well, actually, they didn't do this. In Israel, Israelite culture, uh, they would call their sheep and sheep would follow them. But goading is when you take a sharp implement and you poke an animal in the flanks. And that was a way to get them to obey, but it didn't feel all that good. And what is happening, Paul is encouraging Jewish Christians to influence their Gentile brothers and sisters, but not with poking comments, prodding statements. He's encouraging them to guide brothers and sisters, not merely goad them. Um, From what Paul said in the end of chapter 2, and I'm going to read it, you would think that there's no real advantage to being Jewish. Here's what he says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Again, what might, what he said might imply that God had his time with the Jews 
And maybe they dropped the ball or maybe he was done with them, but there's really no advantage to being Jewish. And Paul picks that up in the beginning of chapter 3. Let's see what he says. Chapter 3, verse 1. It's in your worship folder if you want to follow along as I read. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Um, Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul writes, Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. An oracle is a divine pronouncement. It's when someone supernatural says something. And so it's indicating Jews were entrusted with words from God. It goes on. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? The good may come. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul asks what Jewish Christians are asking. Is there any spiritual advantage to being a Jew? And he indicates Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Some individuals believe that the Jews have passed the ball off to the church and that God really is done with the Jews in terms of their role in salvation history. Paul would flatly disagree. They served to transmit words to Gentiles, as we'll see, but God is not done with them. They've been entrusted with the words of God. They've been entrusted with them. They are vessels in which God transmits his words to mankind. So what Paul understands is this. God speaks 
himself out to mankind, but he didn't do so directly. I've never heard God's voice. I've never heard audibly something from him. Most, some claim to, and perhaps, I'm not sure, I'm not going to say it's, it's not possible, but in general, what God does when he speaks is he gives the message to a human messenger, and through that messenger conveys and transmits his words to others. That first messenger, they were Jews. That's what it's indicated. They were entrusted with the words of God. To be entrusted with something doesn't mean you take it and you do what you want with it. It's, it means that you have to do with it what the one who gave you the words wants you to do. You're entrusted with them. And there's going to be some accountability. You've been given something and told to do something with it. And that's the way Paul understood what God did through Jews initially. He gave them words, and they were to do some things with them. We'll talk about what that is. Um, God promised to channel blessings to the, to the world, to Gentiles. Again, if you're a Jew, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's Jews and there's everybody else, Gentiles. And what God told Abraham, well, let me read it to you. The Lord said to Abram, before his name was Abraham, some guy though, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This is God introducing himself to a person, showing up to this guy named Abram who believed in many gods at the time. He wasn't a a stellar, righteous person. God said, I am going to choose you. And he showed up and he talked to Abram. This is what he said to him. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's what he said to Abram. I'm going to get to know you. In fact, what's going to happen, every nation on the earth is going to be blessed through you. Um, This promise, then, was established with Abram and his children. The children of Abraham are Israelites, sons of Israel. The promise was restated. Look what it says in your worship folder. It's in from Isaiah, a prophecy written about 700 years before Christ comes. And then in this prophecy, we learn about a problem and we learn about a solution. And it has to do with God giving someone a message to convey that message to somebody else, which again is the way that God seems to do things. Look what it says. Truth is lacking. He describes Israeli culture at the time. It's not good. It's as decadent, maybe not as decadent as Rome was 700 years later, but it doesn't sound good. It says, truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So people are morally bankrupt. And then it describes God's reaction when he looks at the immorality that characterized Israel at the time. Here's what he says. 
the Lord saw it and was displeased that there was no justice. He was displeased that there's an absence of morality, that there's an absence of virtue, there's an absence of truth, there's an absence of justice that displeases him. But then it's going to use a word, it says wondered, but really the word is more intense. God was displeased that there was no justice, but he was he wondered, he was really appalled at something else. What would be more objectionable to God than to see an immoral, decadent, virtueless culture? Let's see what he says. So the Lord looked and displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, no, no man, and wondered or was appalled that there was no one to intercede. Let me tell you what intercede means. When Jacob who became Israel. It was another name before he became known as Israel. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he went to meet his brother, Esau. And he thought Esau was had it out for him. So, But at any rate, at the point when Jacob and Esau, they come into contact, that's the word that describes its translated intercede what it means is meet so here's what here's what god here's god's reaction they're twofold he's displeased that there's no justice but he's appalled that there's no one encountering or meeting the people with his words in their mouth nobody's transmitting god's message that's the thing that appalls him. God looks at a culture and says, it's bankrupt, it's blind, it, it's not doing what I would have them do, and that displeases me. Let me tell you what appalls me. He had commissioned some individuals to take his words to the people, but they're not saying them. They're not saying them. And so God looks at that. Of course the people are in the dark. Nobody's talking to them. Nobody's telling them what I've dispatched some to say. That's what appalls him. And look at what God does with the problem. It describes it. And then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. You know what it says? God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to fix this problem. Again, what's the problem? There's a morality issue, but that's not the real deep problem. The deep problem is no one's talking on his behalf. Now look what God does to fix the problem. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you to the redeemer and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forever. See, again, what's the problem? Is the problem a receiver problem? Is it a transmitter problem? That's the problem. The transmitter are out. And what God's going to say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to provide some transmitters 
who are going to receive and transmit what I, and it starts with the Redeemer. Who's the Redeemer? Jesus. One in whose mouth God puts spirit words. And what God promises, the one that I send, he's going to get it right. He's going to say exactly what I want him to say. And that's what Jesus has done. Not only Jesus, but Jesus is going to have kids. And kids who have kids. And so the problem with transmitters, God's going to fix the transmitter problem. Paul understood that he had a unique role in this. He was a transmitter whose responsibility was to transmit God's word to, I'm not sure if we have any Jews here today, mostly Gentiles, perhaps all, but God's responsibility is to receive words from God and make sure the Gentiles get to hear them. Because we really can't change until we hear what God says to us. We really can't change our heart until we hear the words. We can't hear the words unless they're spoken. And Paul is the one designated by Jesus to make sure that we are in a position to understand what God wants to say to us. Um, Paul understood that he'd been given spirit words for Gentiles. This is what Jesus revealed to him. Jewish Christians, the first tier, the first responders to the gospel, were Jews, Jewish Christians. Paul understood Jewish Christians were given spirit words to extend to Gentiles. No, that's what happens. And Acts, Paul's standing in Jerusalem. He's talking about his life, and he's going to describe how he heard Jesus talking to him. And Jesus said, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he, and he goes, and so he talks about Jesus being God, and, and people don't react. Let me, let me read, let me just, yeah, read, listen to what happens in the course of this testimony. Paul's going to say something, and the Jews listening are going to flip out. Listen, try to catch what flips them out, okay? That's what it says. I'm reading from Acts 22, and Paul's writing. I'm sorry, Paul's speaking. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Stephen was the first martyr. You needed to have a government official preside over stoning. Who was that who presided? It was Paul. Paul saying, I'm the one who was there giving approval. Yep, keep throwing the rocks. What they would do is they would put a person in a pit about six to ten feet, and people would gather around the, the, this pit, take big rocks, and so it's not like launching a rock across a distance. It's kind of taking a rock and throwing it down. And so they were standing around throwing rocks down at Stephen until they killed him. And then somebody had to be there to justify it, and Paul was there going, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, keep throwing. He's not dead yet. Then he, Paul goes on, then the Lord said to me, and Paul is, is describing this, listen to what he says. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now when he's saying this in Jerusalem, what do you imagine the people did? 
Oh, wonderful. Great. <laughs> we, we really like the fact that, that uh, we are ruled over by Roman Gentiles. And so God's telling you, Paul, to take this news and to spread it to Gentiles. Um, they raised their voices and shouted, rid, rid the earth, he's not fit to live. Um, they were livid, livid. Uh, Paul believed that Jews were entrusted with the new covenant to give it to Gentiles. The thought of extending eternal inclusion to Gentiles when you're a Jew was unpalatable. Talk about a bitter pill to swallow. And talk about a tough act. That's what God gave Paul responsibility to do. It's like, I'm going to give it an invitation, get into heaven, and I want you to take this, Paul, and I want you to give it to Gentiles. That's what Paul understood. Um, Jews were being asked to extend to outsiders spiritual privileges not made available to insiders, not made available to their countrymen. I think we can appreciate the difficult role Jews discharged at this point in salvation history. Would you agree with me? God giving words of eternal life, inviting eternal existence, and he puts them into the hands of the sons of Israel not many of them, because no, not many believed in Jesus. That's the way it was supposed to be. But God says, I want you, 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 about maybe 10% of you, and I want you to go and take this word, and I want you to give it to Gentiles. I want you to let them know that I love them, and I want them to be part of my forever family. That's the role. That's what God did. That's what he entrusted them with. Um, it's like when, you know the, the parables? Remember that parable, all the, the parables that, that talk about something really not being fair? Remember the one about the, the people who work all day? They go in the heat of the day, and there's one, they, he works all day, and then another guy comes a couple hours later, he works most of the day. Somebody comes early afternoon, works half the day, and then here comes this guy walking in, says, I don't have a job, and so he says, okay, get out in the field, and it's 4 o'clock. And he punches out at five. And so he tells his parable. And so they get their money. And the one who's worked the heat of the day, you know, he wipes his brow off and he gets his daily allowance, about a denarii. And so he's saying, okay, it's about right. And then he sees this guy who walks an hour, works an hour. And this guy walks up. And what does he get? A denarii. He, this guy, and you know, you know who this guy represents who who is a Johnny-come-lately, who does that represent? I'm looking at them. I'm looking at them. Individuals who didn't have to walk around in the wilderness. We didn't have to bear the heat of the day. Our older brother, Jewish Christians, took a message went into a land not their own, experienced the rage of their countrymen in order to extend new covenant invitation to us. That's ah, really difficult. Really, they didn't have their best life now. 
And why do we, we talk about this? It's, oh, this is a parable spoken to Jews. Again, I'm not going to get into this a bunch, but it, it really grieves me that the church became anti-Semitic so quickly in the early part of the second century. Um, they were called Jesus killers. And God purposed. He did what he was doing. God knows what he's doing. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't his purpose that most Jews would believe in Jesus. It wasn't God's purpose. It was his purpose that enough people, enough Jews, responded to make sure that the word could get out to Gentiles. That's the question. Will God's, will human unfaithfulness trump God's faithfulness? Did God accomplish what he wanted to accomplish? You know how we know that? We're talking about this 2,000 years later. We're Gentiles. Did God pull off what his purpose, what he purposed to pull off? Yes. And who do we have to thank for it? God Almighty, the Redeemer, and the Redeemer's first kids, Jewish Christians, our older brothers and sisters. Because of their work, we know the things we know. Um, for most Jews, it was unacceptable. You know what the problem with grace is? You know what grace is? Undeserved favor. It's an undeserved gift. You know what the problem with grace is? It's that God went to his first children. He said, here's an undeserved gift, and I want you to give it to them. That's the problem with grace, that it's an undeserved gift that they get. And that was the issue. The ones who deserve it more are asked to give it to those who don't deserve it. Um, Paul writes, what if some were unfaithful? Does the faithfulness Faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. Did God bench the Jews because they didn't believe in the Messiah? God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Is God finished with the nation of Israel? Not in your life. Not in your life. God doesn't select some individuals to be his children and then drop them. Our God is so faithful. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know exactly. All we'll know is when we stand with him and look back, we're going to go and we're going to say, I am so glad you're as faithful as you are. God is very faithful. When he invites somebody into his family, he doesn't drop you. He doesn't drop you. You say, I'm not a spitting image. It's okay. God's very patient. And what he wants you to do, listen to the spirit words. Make room for them. Listen to them. People have suffered so that we could have them. And you do make room for them. You're here on a really cold day. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that. That's what we'll do week after week after week. We're going to listen to the words. We're going to listen to the words. We're going to listen to the words because they filter into your brain and you start to think differently about God. You find, you start to change. And you know what you might do? You might reflect them out to somebody else. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it's supposed to work. Human faithfulness cannot impede divine faith. 
fullness. Paul cites objections posed by Jewish believers. Look at verse 5. These are things that are being said in these in Rome, in the community. Um, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unjust, unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And here's what the point is in these allegations. Okay, let me get this, let me get this right. So these would be Jews who didn't believe in Jesus at the time. So let me, let me get this right. Okay, let me say, okay, Paul, and okay, this is what you're saying. You're saying that, uh, Gentiles really messed up, and because Gentiles messed up, then God gives a free gift, and because this gift is of grace, then God gets people like him. Okay, so this is what we should do then. Everybody should really mess up. Sin it up. Sin it up. You got to be sin it up. God loves it when you sin, because he's good to sinners. So if you want God to be good, what should you do? Sin it up. And then... What, that's what they're charging. You understand why they would do this? They're, they're angry. What do you mean people who don't deserve it get a free gift? Okay. We can understand that, can't you? You, know, you understand what that would feel like? You know what this is like? This is like the, the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? Right? He asks for the inheritance, goes, and he, he goes into the town and does things we don't want to talk about. And the older brother is there slaving in the fields, slaving in the fields, slaving in the fields. So his brother comes back, sees the character of his father is eating pig stuff in a Gentile farm, and it dawns on him. He was so aware of wanting the inheritance that he really didn't notice his father. Didn't notice him. All he saw him, when he saw his father, all he saw was his checkbook. And that his dad had resources that he wasn't getting. That's all he saw with his father's checkbook. Well, what's he doing? He's eating pig stuff. And he's not supposed to eat, be eating pig stuff because he's a Jew. And then it dawns on him, wait a minute. My dad has servants. And he doesn't make them eat from... He doesn't make them eat what animals eat. And you know what ends up happening? He ends up really seeing his father for the first time. You know what? I was so busy thinking of what he wasn't giving me. I really never thought of what he was like. And then he ends up saying, you know what? I'm going to go back. And I'm going to say, God, I, I, Father, I want you to be just make me a servant. And his father's watching for him. And he sees him come up the street and runs to him. Kill the fatted calf. And he does, he throws the party. But then you know what happened? You know what happened? And I can't blame him. I'm an older brother. How many older brothers do we have here? Yeah. You're slaving in the field. Oh, very nice. Mm-hmm. No, isn't that wonderful? We're going to throw a party for my younger brother who took the inheritance and now he wasted it doing all kinds of unmentionable things and dad's going to throw a party. We can understand that, can't we? That's what the Jews felt like. No. Um, 
And that's what they're saying. Um, they resented. And some, many Jews couldn't handle it, understandable, that they were jars of clay to give spiritual benefits to Gentiles. Do you know why God does what he does and what he talks about? Well, look what he says in verse 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. And then what he does is he talks about, he, he just lists a bunch of things from the Old Testament. Just little statements that say everybody's a sinner, whether you're Greek or a Jew. How many sinners we got here? Yeah, it's, just, it's what it's saying. The ground is level at the cross. That's what it's saying. We all, if a Jew or a Gentile, nobody has an advantage at the base of the cross. We are all, we are all sinners. There you go. Some of us might be worse sinners than others. <laughs> all of us fall short. We all fall short. But you know what? At the base of the cross, it's where you're supposed to be. You don't come to the cross getting ready to pay God off with all your spiritual spiritual currency. You don't come with your Sunday school attendance pins. Again, go to Sunday school, go to services, but don't whip them out and be prepared to pay God off for eternity because eternity is not something you can pay for. Is something we need but don't deserve. Um, he goes on and yeah, he says all, verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All from the Old Testament, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on the lift. It goes on and on and on. Jews aren't any better off because they have the Ten Commandments. Um, this is the offense of grace. None of us deserve it. But at some point, we have a them. We don't deserve it. But they really don't deserve it. And we have an us and a them. And that's some things don't change. That's one thing that hasn't changed. That's something that still trips us up. We're glad to receive a gift, but we really are not all that sure that we want them. Who is your them? It's not to say that everyone is not going to heaven. They need to hear the words. And the words have to be given and transmitted. That's why we need to continue to talk about this. And say to the world what God wants us to say to the world. And we'll close with that in just a minute. The law doesn't exist to promote righteousness. That's what we said. It says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know what the law is supposed to make us do? Go like this. That's what the law is supposed to make us do. How many of you believe that you should that God should let you into heaven. You can't because I'm a sinner. That's what the law is supposed to do. So we all understand that
that at the base of the cross we need a gift. And that's, that's why it exists. Paul's point is that it isn't God's purpose to impose the law on Gentiles. Jesus died so that those who are under the law can die with Christ and be raised above the law. The last verse, look what it says, Galatians 2. I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. You know what the, the law is like? The law is like a thermometer. Now we have thermometers that go in your ear. If you've gone to the doctor and he took your temperature with a thermometer, remember those little thermometers? They don't use them much anymore, do they? The little glass ones, you know, that has a silver tip. Anybody ever remember those? Anybody? Yeah, some of you older ones. So, anyway, you ever hear a doctor say this? You know, you, you, take, you put it in and it tells you how sick you are, right? You ever hear a doctor say, take two thermometers and call me in the morning? Anybody ever hear that? You know why you didn't hear that? Because a thermometer can't make you well and only can tell you how sick you are. The law is like a thermometer. But Jesus is like the doctor. The law tells us how sick we are. We're not supposed to tell them. We're not supposed to tell them if you keep the commandments, God will bless you. And if you don't, God will curse you. That's not, that's what somebody under law is supposed to say. We, this is what it's, it's what it indicates. And this is what we, when we celebrate, we think of communion. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Jesus died so that we don't have to do an acceptable job of conforming our life to the Ten Commandments. The law tells us how sick we are. It can't heal us. Jesus comes so that, well, look what it's, so that we are no longer under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. We're under the jurisdiction of the new covenant. Remember, we, we say four things about the new covenant. Then we're going to experience communion. We know what the new covenant is. God's in me. God's with me. Good is ahead of me. Guaranteed. You remember those things, can't you? You know what the old covenant is? If you obey, you'll live. If you disobey, you'll die. The new covenant is God's in you, God's with you, God's ahead of you, guaranteed. How do you know God will accept you? Jesus rose from the dead, and if you believe in him, you're going to go where he went. Where did he go? Up to the Father, above the level of law. Are you underneath the jurisdiction? No, you're not underneath the jurisdiction. But here's the problem. The world cannot behold what the church does not reflect. You know what the world needs to understand? It needs to hear spirit words. It needs to hear through transmitters the word that God destined transmitters to give. And what is that word? It's this one. Jesus died so that we could experience eternal existence. It's a gift. That's what the world needs to know. 
The world cannot behold what the church does not reflect, and the church cannot reflect what the church does not behold. That's why we'll continue to talk about what Jesus says in spirit words so that we can both learn them and extend them to others. We'll continue to work through this letter. Communion, it really works. Um, if, if God is going to accept you because you keep the commandments, then Jesus didn't need to die. But he did need to die. And because he did die, he extends the offer of, if you believe in my son and understand why he came, to pull you out from under old covenant law. I'm, I'm glad people like Paul, aren't you glad? I'm glad they did what they did. Boy, am I glad that we have these words. And and because we have the words, we can kind of understand how God does things and what he really does want us to hear. This is what he wants us to hear. Jesus died so that we could have a gift, and he dispatched his, older, his oldest sons to make sure we would hear it. So when we come to communion, that's what I want you to think about. Think about the new covenant. God's saying, I'm in you, I'm with you. Good's ahead of you, guaranteed. Believe it. As you believe it, it'll change your heart. As you change your heart, you'll find yourself loving God and loving others. Come, there's a table in the back. Grab the juice and the bread. Think about the new covenant and those four statements. Can you remember them? God's in me. God's with me. God's ahead of me. Guaranteed. Think about those things as you eat. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your purposes and for the Redeemer and Jesus, the words that you gave him. He initially gave them to Jewish Christians who had a very difficult task to plant those words in the Gentile world. We thank you for their success in doing so and for your faithfulness. I'd ask that we would understand that message and remain in it so that we could understand it and behold it and reflect it in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.